If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Have you ever spotted McDonald's hot, crispy fries right as they're being scooped into the carton? And time just stands still. It's very, very loose cut because this man who wore this would have been going up and down rigging. It's covered in bits of tar, so it's obviously quite used. That was Tanya Cooper describing one of the many objects on show at the National Portrait Gallery's new exhibition. In the pub school game, it was, it was regarded as unmanly. It was an abdication of responsibility to pass the ball. It was all about you know, charging into the other side. It was mock battle. And that was Richard Sanders on football 150 years ago. Also this week, we're talking to the BBC's commissioning editor for history about the corporation's First World War plans. Hello, and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar, and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good newsagents and on subscription. See historyextra.com forward slash subscribe hyphen today for our latest subscription deals. And we also have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, the Kindle Fire, Google Play and Zinio. For details of all of those, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. A new exhibition examining the lives of ordinary Tudor people has recently opened at the National Portrait Gallery in London. We sent our features editor, Charlotte Hodgman, to meet the exhibition's curator, Dr Tanya Cooper, and take a closer look at some of the remarkable objects on show. 
Right, so Tanya, it's, it's a couple of days before the exhibition mm-hmm. opens, um, and you kind of invited me down to, to have a look at the exhibition. And we're sitting in front of probably one of my favourite paintings, which is The Fate of Bermondsey. Um, can you perhaps just tell us a little bit, a bit about this painting and why it's so special? Yes, it's a really, really remarkable painting for British art because so few things like this actually exist. It's an extraordinary uh, celebration scene on mm-hmm. the bank of the River Thames and you're somewhere about Bermondsey, I think, where Bermondsey is now. And you have this extraordinary array of different people, um, different classes of society, from serving people to extraordinarily wealthy individuals. I mean, he's in the middle here is a man in his golden cloak with a lovely hat. And then some of the um, brightly dressed women, which is always interesting, I think, aren't necessarily the, the really rich people, but are also the people, the country people. There's a lovely woman, uh, two or three women and men, who are dancing with their red stockings on um, and lovely red hose. So it shows a real range of society. And, and would that have been, I mean, would the sort of scene actually have taken place, do you think? Could it have happened? It, it certainly could have happened. We know that there were quite a lot of fates uh, throughout the year in Elizabethan England, um, just uh, near the Thames or throughout London. Mm-hmm. What you've got is possibly a cross between a, a fate or a community celebration and a wedding. Right. We think it might be a wedding because on the far side, on the right side of the picture, you have coming out from probably the church entrance, as it were, a procession of people but they're wearing rather sober clothes they're wearing black Um, but right this man you see him here he is carrying a golden cup with flowers and garlands coming out and streamers and then in front of him is four people two women and two men who are carrying these enormous enormous cakes and these are described (laughs) and they're very very likely bride cakes and we know that this is a, a, a the type of um, celebration that might have taken place at a wedding. But exactly where the bride is, I think, is another question. Historians have got all sorts of theories about that. She may have come out already and be among the party, and this may be the family who are coming in, or it may be an amalgam of a fate scene and a wedding. I mean, there is so much to see. You can see the Tower of London in the background in the far corner. There's some musicians, and I think in your your piece you wrote that you wrote that perhaps the artist himself has... Perhaps painting himself in it. Exactly, yeah. There's a on the far right hand side, right at the front of the picture, there are two musicians in their beautiful scarlet coats mm-hmm. who've probably got um, something equivalent to a violin, but possibly a viol. Um, and just behind them are three men who are looking out at the picture to you. There's one man sat down, all of them have got oh, two of them have got caps on, one's bareheaded, and all of them are looking out directly at mm. you, the viewer. And it's a sort of trope or a, a type of um, a format really for the artist yeah. to look directly out at the, at the viewer and I think it probably is this man just sat down, sat yeah. down here who's saying hello I'm here this is what I look like yeah. I mean one thing that um, strikes me when I look at this is, is the, you were saying earlier about the colours of the, of the clothes mm. even the, the poorer people they're wearing very bright clothes exactly um, and when you think about people wearing quite drab clothes yes, in this period and, you know. but this is an absolute riot of colour there are people wearing really bright scarlet red this lovely peacock blue colour that this man's got on his coat and some lovely kind of pinks and greens and this man or young boy really holding a 
a dog who's being attacked by another dog. He's wearing these great, lovely stockings, red stockings, and then a lovely blue um, long jacket, as it were. They look um, quite elaborate, but yeah. actually some of these people are, would, be, would be reasonably um, middle class or fairly ordinary people. It wasn't black that you can see in the middle. Mm-hmm. The, the, some of the wealthiest people really are dressed in black, and black was this colour that was um, quite an expensive colour right. to get because it needed to be dyed again and again and again to get a really true black. So it was yeah. a kind of a status colour, really black. We're in the Elizabeth room um, and we're sort of surrounded by various portraits of, of Queen Elizabeth I. And the one directly in front of us is a huge, huge piece. It's the, the Hardwick Hall mm, painting. That's right. Um, and it's just a, it's an amazing, amazing piece. Uh, can you just maybe just describe what we're seeing? Yes. I mean, there are some wonderful, iconic portraits of Elizabeth I here, but this painting really dominates the room because of its size, but also because of its remarkable composition. Mm. Elizabeth is standing before us on a step which is carpeted and she appears sort of looming above you what she's wearing really attracts attention and Elizabeth's costumes are always rather remarkable but this one is absolutely extraordinary and she's wearing a huge great farthingale which was a great large um, hoop that would allow your uh, skirt to hang out uh, in a circular movement as it were but the fabric that's covering that is covered in probably embroidered but possibly painted fishes and sea creatures sea monsters Mm. uh, and flowers and you can see all sorts of extraordinary sort of sea unicorns and crabs and roses and flowers um, almost sort of sea swimming dogs and extraordinary swans Um, there is a plethora of animals that you can't almost begin to uh, imagine because they are extraordinary imaginary creatures and I think Although very little of Elizabeth I's costume survives, virtually nothing survives, it's quite likely that this was a real dress. Oh, OK, so this exactly exists. That would have existed. There are, there's a long inventory of Elizabeth's clothes, and we know that she did have some really, really remarkable costume. Mm. So I think, although it looks bizarre and extraordinary, it probably is fairly accurate. Yeah, and it, I mean, it's a, it's a, you can almost feel like you could sort of touch the dress, doesn't it? The, the silk and the... It's shimmering um, away, mm, isn't it? Is. The satin, you just want to kind of feel the quality of it. Yeah, and, and in some bits of the dress I can understand. I mean, it's, it's covered in pearls. Obviously, mm. she used as a, to show her virginity and That's things right. like that. Mm. Why would she have had a dress with all these sort of sea monsters and, and things like that on it? What, what does that tell us? Well, the Elizabethans are quite playful. They really love the opportunity right. for all sorts of extraordinary things and we'll see some other things later in the show Mm. Um, but I think it's not necessarily that all of these these emblems are emblems or symbols of things they're actually it's just exquisitely beautiful it's uh, a drama it's the the extraordinary sort of quality of the of the different fabrics um, that are used because what you've got is the sheen and probably you've got some sort of uh, shimmer shimmering light fabric that would have gone over over the top of that yeah. so as it would have moved in a different way and as you say the pearls the, the the black part of the dress is absolutely covered in rubies and pearls and elizabeth routinely wore three colors of red black gold and white and you see all of those here and yeah. in other uh, parts of the room too i love that you can see her little shoes as well tiny little shoes lovely little feet mm. <laughs> um, and just looking around i mean um how how well known would elizabeth have been to her people i mean would people have known what she looked like? Well, it's a really good question, and it's the point of this room, really, mm. because this, this portrait um, was commissioned by Bess of Hardwick, we think, and has been at Hardwick Hall, really, ever since um, the death of Elizabeth I. So 
this is a painting which would have hung in uh, a noble household. What we're looking at in other portraits around this room, they would have hung in guild halls and in universities. Mm -hmm. But also, Elizabeth did something really, really remarkable with the help for her advisors. She encouraged everybody to uh, return all of the currency and reissued the coinage in 1561. So you have most people lucky enough to own, own a few earn a few coins mm. would um, have a portrait in their pocket on the coinage uh, of Elizabeth so she's quite clever in that way because yeah. she's allowing people to see her image but at the same time putting the country on a sound economic footing by ensuring that there is no sort of dud, dud coinage out there as it were it's quite a shrewd decision it's in a all really ways really. yes it's really because people would have seen her image anybody mm. who's, who's earning money from working because um, they're down to they're on the, the penny coins as yeah. well the, sil- okay. the silver coinage but in general, I would say Elizabeth is the most well-known uh, monarch of her time, much more so than Edward Mary or her father, Henry VIII. OK, another one, uh, certainly another favourite of mine in the exhibition, is, um, is, the, is the Elizabeth Fernan um, image, and that's actually in the feature as well that, you, that you've written for mm. us. Um, and again, this is quite a remarkable picture, isn't it? I think this is a breathtaking <laughs> picture. It's really extraordinary, both as a portrait, but also for who it represents. And the woman you, you can see in this painting is Elizabeth Fernan, who is Countess of Southampton. And why you know she's a countess is that on some pillows to the right is that she has her countess's robes um, in red, which is got, uh, lined with ermine. But it's a remarkable thing because she is shown in a private chamber, probably her dressing room, and next to her are laid out jewels and pendants and a little jewel box and then all the pins that she would need to put her costume together. So she's in the process of dressing, or possibly even undressing. Um, I'm up on a curtain beside, you see her ruff (laughs) and some wired out jewels, and she's combing her hair in a rather sort of um, kind of perhaps come hither way, yeah. um, which is interesting, I suspect. It's, it's very informal, isn't it, it, compared to some of the other Yes, it's incredibly informal. And Elizabeth Vernon at this period is just about to marry, or was possibly just married, um, the Earl of Southampton. And the Earl of Southampton is Shakespeare's only known patron, Henry Rothersley. Okay. Um, so there are all sorts of uh, theories and ideas that are spun around this picture, but they sort of... Um, what the painting is really about is a young couple who've just got married. So whether it's commissioned by, by Henry Rothersley, I suspect it, it probably is, but we, we won't know. But you have a kind of young bride who is preparing herself mm. um, for the toilet, whether it's just to go to bed or she's getting up in the morning. I think there's something incredibly moving about this because you never have that sense, really, that you encounter an Elizabethan in their bedchamber. No, no, not at all. And, and if we walk over here to one of your cabinets that have been set up, we can actually see some of the um, some of the items are actually on her dressing table. Well, obviously not that may belong to her, but yeah. We, we use the, the portrait of Elizabeth Vernon and all of the wonderful pendants and pins and um, jewels that you can see there to put together a group of surviving Elizabethan objects. And there's some incredibly exciting things yeah. here because these things don't really exist. Most Elizabethan jewels have been dismantled and, and recut uh, and remodelled in a, a later period. So we pulled together some of the things that an Elizabethan woman might have had on her dressing table, not only her gorgeous rings, and we've got a beautiful diamond set ring here, just come to us from the Ashmolean Museum with really, really lovely 
um, enamelled areas to it. It's one of the things that I almost most want to slip on my my (laughs) finger in this exhibition. What I love most of all, though, are these little uh, Elizabethan pins. They look a little bit like tacks, don't they? You would put put in the wall. They do. And pins were absolutely indispensable in the Elizabethan period. Most people had what's called pin money to buy pins because you couldn't really get dressed without pins. Um, Lots of costume in this period was separate, so your sleeves might be separate from your, your jacket or your doublet and they'd be pinned together. Um, these have come from an archaeological uh, dig there from the Museum of London and we've put them in a, in a setting a little bit like you can see on um, Elizabeth Vernon's dressing table. So they would, they would sort of go out wearing, sort of being pinned together, really? They would. That'd <laughs> be a bit risky. Well, the safety pin hasn't been quite invented no. at this period. But if we go around this side, we mm-hmm. can look at a lovely little fashionable purse. And we featured this in, in the article. A lovely little frog purse. And it's a tiny frog-shaped purse, yes. And this is um, in gilt and silver thread. Um, what you would have kept in it is probably needles and buttons mm. and personal items for a woman, but it would have been the height of fashion to take out perhaps to the theatre or, or to go to see friends. And again, it's, Elizabethans are quite playful with the things mm-hmm. they like. They love this idea of, of um, things pretending to be other things, a trompe idea, and um, almost looks like this little frog could kind of jump off onto, onto your lap and, and it, might it cause is, a scream from a, from a lady. Beautiful. yeah. And it, it, I mean, it probably is about the size of a frog. It's, it's, not, it's, it's tiny, isn't it's it? It's terribly really Realistic. It's the sort of thing if you found in your in on, in your drawer, you might sort of scream yeah. that the frog is, is there. Mm. Um, but very very charming. All of these things here would have regularly been given as gifts, and Elizabethan culture is a great gift giving culture, um, particularly at New Year. And so there's a gorgeous golden pomander here, which opens out, and you would have had different perfumes, probably wooden balls that were soaked in um, different oils, okay. uh, sandalwood and rose, um, and various different um, clove scents. And you might wear this around your neck or possibly around your waist. And the attention to detail on all of these, I mean, obviously these would have been the wealthier end of, of the spectrum would have had these types of... Absolutely. Goods, these, so. these two tables are set up mm. as, um, as dressing tables of the nobility, really. I think there is something about the Elizabethan period which loves its detail. Mm. You know, there is more is more is more. You know, yes. there isn't this idea of a, a modern aesthetic that you Definitely. want to pair back. And the Elizabethans never feel that. They think, oh, can we add some more pattern and some yeah. more, more <laughs> colour to this? So it's quite fun, I think. And were the houses the same? Is that how they would have decorated the houses and things like that? We know that most houses would have had either tapestries, if you're particularly wealthy, Mm. or much more likely, um, if you're you're middle class or less wealthy, painted hangings. And these come up in every single inventory you can find. And you even find painted hangings in um, servants' quarters as well. And they would be quite colourful, decorative hangings that may be um, either floral devices, or they might be narrative scenes. They might be scenes from the Bible or um, mythological scenes mm. and they would be quite kind of colourful and decorative and they would hang over your walls pretty much for warmth really but also to, to, to cheer the place up. Yeah. And another one that I think probably listeners will be quite familiar with it's been in the news quite yes. um, quite recently yeah. is the this picture of the Elizabethan children yes. um, with a guinea pig and a little bird. Yeah. Um, another astonishing picture isn't it? This is a really charming picture of three children and they're aged five, six and seven, two boys and a little girl and they're holding their pets, a guinea pig, a multicoloured guinea pig, brown, (laughs) little and brown and white guinea pig that the girl is holding and then the little youngest boy is holding what we think is a sort of a a finch, a male linnet and you sort of worry for this little bird that he's holding because you sort of think, is he holding it um, a little bit too within an inch of its life? It does, (laughs) it it does, but they're wearing really it's 
extraordinary costume, um, yellow silks and satins. And then, of course, they've also got jewellery on. And you think these poor little children are kind of covered in, in cha- gold chains and mm. pendants and uh, various different things. So, and then also the two boys have got these lovely hats at the bottom with, with uh, feathers on down here. You can imagine that the children sort of insisting that their pets came along as mm, well. You can. <laughs> you can. Yeah. They are dressed like miniature adults, aren't they, as they well? Really Is that are. quite normal? It's very normal, yes, after a period of time. It's, it's unusual for this boy um, to, be, to be out of skirts. It's usually, he's, he's only, That's the young age the five-year-old. The five-year-old. But yes, when you can get to a certain age five, six, seven, usually seven, um, you, you, you just are a miniature adult and you yeah. wear exactly the same level of status clothes as your parents. What was extraordinary about the Elizabethan period is because uh, Elizabeth reigned for over 40 years, you end up with a very, very stable economy. Mm. Um, and the character who's absolutely the centre of that is this man here, this lovely portrait of Thomas Gresham, who is one of the most talented uh, financiers, really, of the century, the 16th century. He manages uh, to negotiate uh, loans on behalf of the Crown very favourably. He works between London and Antwerp. And he's enormously energetic. Um, and he helps with the early recoinage, which is bringing all the, all the um, duff money in, effectively, and ensuring that we have a pure uh, gold and silver coinage. So he puts the country on an extraordinary stable footing, but he also does incredibly nicely for himself. <laughs> you can see here that he looks rather, rather glamorous. But the world turned out, yes. yeah. In some ways, you would think that the black is quite a sober colour to be wearing, but it's one of the most expensive colours you can be seen in. And quite interestingly, I mean, women also had a role to play in business, mm. maybe a slightly different role, didn't they? We're standing now in front of the picture of Joan Allen. Um, I think this is an incredibly beautiful, <laughs> lovely portrait of a, of a middle-class woman. She could be a merchant's wife, but we know that Joan Allen uh, married an entrepreneur and business dealer. Um, she's the wife, really, of an actor and star of the, the London stage, uh, Edward Allen. And you see her here wearing um, smart black clothes and having beautiful uh, red and brown gloves. She's also carrying a little book, which is probably a prayer book, and she's got a tall velvet hat on her head. There's a lot of hats like that in sex exhibition, aren't there? There's a lot of hats, yes. I think it's interesting that portraits of this type of person, this class of person, were being painted at this period because mm. portraiture really expands. And by the end of the Elizabethan period, you get people who are laughing at um, the idea that, that merchants' wives could have their portrait uh, painted. So one play which is performed in front of Elizabeth I in 1598 comes up with this comment where it says, now that every citizen's wife wears a taffeta skirt and a velvet hat, she must have her <laughs> picture in the parlour. So this is saying, oh gosh, all these merchants' wives have got, are using portraiture now, and that's really not, not on, because it mm. should be kept for the nobility. And what would her role have been? Would she have, played, would she have helped her husband in any way with the business she, side of things? She would. We know, we know a little bit about Joan Allen, but she wasn't literate. Um, okay. The... the uh, Letters that we have from her husband. Um, she's been married, she's aged 22 in this picture, and she was married at 19, so she's already been married for, for four years. You've married quite young. Um, show that the, the letter needed to be read out to her. So at this stage of her life, she, she couldn't yet read. Um, but it's usual for merchants' wives, absolutely, to, to help their husband in all sorts of ways. And in fact, many of them did actually keep the books and do, right. the, do the accounts. <coughs> so who's, who's this? This is a really extraordinary man called George Gower. And I think this is a fascinating picture for this exhibition because it tells you something about 
class status in this period because I think you're just getting to that moment when people are beginning to value skill over and above birthrights and what this artist um, is showing you here in the background with this emblem is he has a scale um, with on the one side an emblem of skill which is a pair of compasses Mm -hmm. and on the other side which is less heavy um, is his own coat of arms he's telling you here Mm -hmm. that my skill retains the praise of my family's honour and that it's more important to me that I'm this clever artist than where I've come from and it's a rather radical statement in the Elizabeth period to say you know it's more important that what you can do it's the beginning almost I suppose of a meritocracy I think that's what's interesting about this show is you're having these individuals that that just are able to stand up for themselves and say actually what I can do as a person is more important than my family background the the differential um, in social class really expands in the Elizabethan period Mm. quite a lot of people become quite a lot richer the middle classes do reasonably well but the poor don't do well at all because prices have gone up so much. I mean, certainly in Elizabeth's period alone, prices uh, over a 40-year period go up by 50%. So it becomes pretty hard for the working yeah. poor. And I suppose it's the, it's the working poor that we don't know an awful lot about, sadly, because they wouldn't have had the money to have their portraits painted or... No, I mean, um, I would have loved to have had a portrait of um, a fisherman or a portrait yeah. of uh, an ordinary... Um, soldier in the army or navy mm. um, who was but instead we've got this rather extraordinary object which yeah. is a seagoing costume which we think was for a sailor and po- possibly an elizabethan sailor um, costume historians have dated this really extraordinarily um, fragile object which is mainly brown rags sewn mm. together um, to about 1590 to 1650 or so. They think it's on the earlier side of that. So it's quite possible that this is exactly what an Elizabethan sailor would look like. It is one of the stars of the exhibition. It is. You encounter it right at the end of Mm. the show. And it's, um, I think, an incredibly moving object, really, because... Um, it's very, very loose cut because this man who wore this would have been going up and down rigging. It's covered in bits of tar, so it's obviously quite used. Well, why does an object like this survive and how can we be sure it's Elizabethan? I think that's an important question for people to ask because um, it was one of several studio props in the wardrobe of history painters and there were two sets of history painters. This got used over a a quite long period of time. So it's the sort of thing that's been stored away for just the right moment that would appear um, in a 19th century painting and he's managed to kind of collect old clothes to allow those sorts of paintings to be recreated. But the stitches both at the top round the collar and round the cuffs, um, costume historians have said have to be 17th century or late 16th century. And the clothes itself, the cloth itself is a woven cloth which is quite specific to that time too. Yeah, you have to look quite closely, don't you, to you, see you, it? You really see do. The it's, it's in quite low light because it's, it's so mm. fragile and so few things exist like this. A costume of the working poor. It's it would have been quite long. I mean, were they, were they the, the, sort of the, the quite sort of baggy type shorts, trousers? How, yes, they how would they have been worn? Balloon hose. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So that they, they allow lots of movement. So if you're trying to climb up and down mm. a mast or rigging, you want to wear something like this rather than tight fitting hose yeah. because fabric at this period isn't going to stretch. No. <laughs> there isn't a micro, I'm afraid. But it wouldn't have kept you very warm, I wouldn't have thought, if you were out at sea. It probably wouldn't have kept you terribly warm, no. Well, it's, imagine it's reasonably waterproof as it starts yeah. to be covered in bits of bits of tar. Um, it looks quite thick as it well. Does, yeah. um, it does. 
Um, but isn't that something that's extraordinary? It's the extraordinary it? survival, yeah. And it's, I think, a lovely way just to think about this whole body of Elizabethan people who, of course, we can't represent through right. portraiture. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. That was Tanya Cooper on Everyday Life in Elizabethan England. Elizabeth I and her people is on show at the National Portrait Gallery until the 5th of January. Visit mpg.org.uk for tickets and information. If you'd like to see images of some of the pieces described in this podcast, including the fate at Bermondsey painting and the frog purse, visit historyextra.com forward slash Tudor people. You can also read a feature by Tanya in the November issue of BBC History magazine, which is out now. Also in the issue, we're considering the career of Nelson, we're taking a trip to an ancient Greek theatre, and we're questioning whether Britain needed to fight the First World War. If you like the sound of all of that, then why not pick up a copy available in all good news agents and digitally? 150 years ago this week, a group of representatives of some of England's football clubs met at a London tavern to form the Football Association. It was an early stepping stone in the development of what was then a fairly minor sport, but is now, of course, a global Goliath. To mark this anniversary, I interviewed football history expert Richard Sanders to find out more about the birth of the sport and to discover how the modern game compares to the Victorian version. What exactly happened on the 26th of October, 1863? 
Well, what happens is around a dozen men meet at the Freemasons Tavern in London. And what they're trying to do is to, well, firstly, set up a national football association, until, which until that time had not existed. But more importantly, what they're trying to do is to agree a common code for football, because none existed at that time. It was different from cricket. Cricket had had the same rules for two or three hundred years. Everyone played by the same rules. Football was an old folk game. It had been played in various parts of the country for hundreds of years. It had different rules everywhere. But crucially, in the 19th century, when it was picked up by the great public schools, each of those public schools played by different rules. And really, this initiative of the FA reflected that social class. It wasn't a gathering of the the people who'd played the old popular form of what's called folk football. It was a gathering of people, most of whom, or many of whom, were drawn from the public schools. And it was an attempt to draw up a common code which all of the public schools and this at this time you know means not a great deal more than half a dozen schools which all of the public schools could agree to now you mentioned folk football which had been played for hundreds and hundreds of years why was it in the 19th century that the public schools started to pick the game up do we know um, the public schools picked the game up. There, there were really two parts of the process here. In the early 19th century, um, the, the public schools pick it up. Simply, it's, it's an initiative from below. The boys start playing it. The boys have generally come to school having already played it as a folk game. And you also have to remember that public schools in the early 19th century are pretty anarchic places. There's not a lot of time actually spent in the classroom. An awful lot of the time, the boys are left to themselves and they, they develop all sorts sorts of, of games that they play. And and football is one of them, very simple game to play. You just simply have to have some, some sort of round ball and, and a space to play it in. So it's a very simple game to play. And, and it's a reflection of the huge amount of leisure time that public school boys had in the early 19th century. Now, at that time, it was rather disapproved of. Um, the headmasters, you know, one described it as being fit only for butcher boys. It was rather looked down on. Um, But then you have this great revolution in methods and manners in the public schools in the mid-19th century, um, when suddenly people are are trying to impose some order on these anarchic institutions. You get the rise of the cult of muscular Christianity and, and the whole cult of athleticism. Suddenly headmasters decide games are actually a rather good idea. They keep the boys out of mischief. Um... And, and they're good for forcing the boys to, to, to organize themselves. And, and above all, they're seen as character forming. And so from around the 1840s, football is actually encouraged in the public schools. What was the relationship at this point between what we now know as football and rugby? Because that would also be being developed at this time. Is that right? Yeah. Now, so the, the key thing to understand here is you, you essentially have seven great public schools. Six of them, of which Eton and Harrow are the best known, but also Winchester, Shrewsbury, Westminster, and so on. Six of them play what we would regard as football. Okay, One of them, rugby, plays what we now know as rugby. Now, the difference there is not necessarily handling. In pretty much all of the forms of football, you could handle the ball. The difference was that at rugby, you could run while holding the ball, something which seems to have evolved um, in, in the first half of the 19th century. So that, that, that was the great fault line within the public schools. The, the six that played football, the, 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 where the kicking game predominated, all played different games, but they were closer together. Rugby played a separate game. We're talking here about the sort of the upper class, how they are playing football. What was going on at this point, at 1863, say, in the wider world? Were working middle class people, were they playing any form of football at this time? 
this is the the interesting point when you look into it. The traditional historiography of football basically um, gives all the credit to developing modern football to the public schools. The idea is that traditional folk football was sort of an anarchic, a wild village romp, which had effectively died out like so many other popular pastimes with the Industrial Revolution, with the enclosure movement, with the growth of towns, etc., etc. Now, modern research shows that actually although it had certainly declined dramatically, old folk football survived a lot more than people thought and also wasn't quite as wild and anarchic as people have always thought. There was much more skill to it than people thought. So this idea that basically folk football dies and modern football is descended from public school football is now being questioned a great deal. People are saying, well, Actually, folk football survives well into the 19th century and definitely feeds into the great takeoff of, of what we regard as modern football towards the end of the century. The other thing that is being rethought is this idea that while the, the, the public schools civilized the wild folk game. Now, th this just doesn't bear any scrutiny at all. As I've said, the folk game possibly wasn't as wild as people said. But also, you just have to read accounts of the public school game to realize that public school football was astonishingly violent and savage, far more so than the folk game. So coming back to this moment in late October 1863, how big a milestone do you see that in the kind of development of football? Well, it's not. This is my big, big point. Um, I mean, it's, it's a very important. I mean, it's a very important point moment in that the FA is established. But the 1863 rules, which are you know seen now almost as the Ten Commandments, you can get booklets printing them out. Those original 13 rules were pretty much never used. The key point about public schools is they were all fiercely jealous of each other. It wasn't just the rugby thing. All seven of them, all seven of the big old-fashioned public schools were fiercely jealous of each other, and they were not interested in getting a common code. They, were, they all wanted to stick to their own games. Now, various attempts had been made to develop a common code at Oxford and, and particularly Cambridge University. But if you actually look at, look at them, um, they hadn't really been used. And the same happens in 1863. The rules that are developed in 1863 are pretty much never used. And just, you know, just look at them. They, they, they bear no relation to modern football. They are also very obviously an attempt to compromise with rugby. They're, they're, they're sort of a mongrel version of the game, everybody's and nobody's, and that's how they were seen. And, and they were pretty much never used. Now, the really, 1863, rather than being the sort of culmination of this progress, this process of civilizing and codifying football, it's the starting point. It's not the culmination, it's the starting point. What happens then is in the 1860s, you get adult clubs established in London, people like No Names of Kilburn, um, Dingley Dell, Wanderers, who are probably the best known. These are dominated by public school men, but they're adults. They've moved away from their school days, and they realize that if they're going to continue playing football, they simply have to develop a common code. And that's where the real initiative comes for developing a common code. And in addition to that, and, and again, modern historiography focuses more and more on this, you have to look at the city of Sheffield. There's a great, simultaneously in the 1860s, there's a great takeoff of football in Sheffield. And there, what's very clear is the game is not being played by ex-public schoolmen. It's a game that's drawing very heavily on the old folk game. And, and Sheffield feeds very strongly into the evolution 
of the rules that then happens in the 1860s. So you get this sort of spontaneous evolution in Sheffield and in London, which happens throughout the 1860s. And really, in the space of a few years, in, in the late 1860s, the modern rule book is developed. But to a degree, that happens entirely separate of the FA. It's clubs who are not even members of the FA evolving their own game. The FA then catches up with this process and with the establishment of the FA Cup in 1871, at that point really does take control of football. And, and the story really begins from there. How quickly did football become the, the mass spectator and mass participation sport that it is nowadays? Pretty quickly. The, the FA Cup finals of the 1870s, if you'd gone along then, uh, at that time, they were teams of gentlemen amateurs, um, men who, who pay, played for no pay. Uh, still playing a very, very physical game that we'd scarcely recognize as football. Although the, the modern rules have evolved, tactics have not. And they're still charging into each other and knocking each other over and all this sort of thing. There's almost nobody watching. They weren't terribly interested in spectatorism, as they called it. They, and um, at that point, it is not a mass game by any means at all. Ten times as many people turned out to watch the Eton Harrow annual cricket game as turned out to watch the FA Cup final. What happens is in the early 1870s, um, you get a massive expansion of the Saturday half holiday um, for various reasons. Uh, you, you suddenly have this space for organized leisure for the working class outside of the Sabbath. It's problematic playing football on the Sabbath in the Victorian era because people are trying to stop you playing football on the Sabbath. And really, it's from that point, from the early 1870s, you begin to see the takeoff. It happens first in Glasgow and around, almost immediately afterwards in Lancashire. Then you see it in the Black Country. Then you see it in the Northeast. I mean, really, uh, the, the, the period of takeoff uh, of the of the great uh, um, of football, the takeoff in popularity is when it begins to be played by the working classes, and that really begins to happen on mass from about 1880 onwards. And really, the great moment is 1883 when Blackburn Olympic um, become the first working class football team to win the FA Cup, defeating the Old Etonians in the final. Um, and so I, I suppose because of simple weight of numbers, eventually, once working class people did start playing football, they would come to dominate it in terms of both players and spectators. Yes. I mean, if I'm to be rather sort of crude and blunt about this, I'd say at that point, the, work, the upper classes decide to play rugby instead because they keep getting beaten, which, which is essentially what happens. And the working classes are inevitably going to dominate it because there are so many more of them. Um, but, but what's interesting is that the working classes pick up threads that have already been developed by certain sort of middle class sides in the 1860s and 1870s. Um, firstly, the Sheffield teams, but also Queen's Park in Scotland, in Glasgow, formed in 1867. Very important in the history of football. These are, are teams that are drawn very much from the respectable classes, but they're men who have not been to public school. They develop, they therefore come to the game fresh, develop their own tactics. The key thing these people do is they pass the ball to each other. It's called combination play. It's a great novelty in the 1870s. In the public school game, it was, it was regarded as unmanly. It was an abdication of responsibility to pass the ball. It was all about you know, charging into the other side. It was mock battle, essentially. It's these, these middle class teams that, that initially begin the, the habit of, of passing the ball to each other. And this is picked up by the new working class um, professionals, particularly in and around Glasgow, and developed further. Because it's the most efficient way of playing football, it, it's also important 
for men who are depending for their livelihood on football, which many working class players are by the late 1880s, it's very important to remain free of injury. So they, they're not particularly drawn to this charging physical game. Also, another key thing you have to remember, in the, late, well, in the mid and late Victorian eras, the upper classes are much bigger than the working classes. Social class is very much reflected in the build of people. You, you, you can see the effect of, of environment and above all of diet. Upper class public school men tend to weigh a couple of stone and be two or three inches taller than, than working class men. And they can't compete in the charging game. So, you know, putting it very simply, they learn to pass the ball around upper class men. And, and really the Invincibles, the Preston team of the, of the 1880s become the great model of the professional working class football team of the future and, and so is, is this physical discrepancy is that why the working classes didn't really take to rugby in the same way that they took to football and they do to a degree of course rugby is played um it is played among the working classes in in yorkshire and in south south lancashire uh, south wales and, and parts of scotland but it's you could debate forever why people choose to play football rather than rugby. My own feeling is that you really need to find an explanation for why some people would play rugby. And and as I as I say, I think it becomes a public school game precisely because they they are they are aware that they're losing control of football to the working classes. So you're talking here about how the working classes um, became involved in football. When when did football become a professionalised sport as opposed to an amateur sport? That really, you begin to see that creeping in from the late 1870s in Lancashire. Lancashire is the key area: Bolton, Blackburn, Preston, around there. You, it's beginning to become quite widespread in the early 1880s. The key thing that happens in football and this is absolutely vital 1885 you have this great crisis comes to a head over the issue of professionalism you know the, the gentlemen amateurs did not like the idea of uh, playing football for a living they, they, they thought it was unsporting uh, and, and so on now you, you can pick this apart psychologically i mean what is the problem of of playing football for a living you, you might argue that it it's essentially because these people keep beating them but anyway it's it's, it's this huge issue and, and football divides over it it's a very interesting thing because you can compare it with the same thing happens in cricket the same thing happens in rugby the great advantage football has is that because it comes from the great old public schools it's dominated the the early fa is dominated by eton and harrow men men who are really very upper class and men who therefore have a certain self-confidence, a certain readiness to compromise. And basically, under certain conditions, they agree that professionalism will be legalized in 1885. And, and that is vital for the future of football. But if you, because other sports don't manage that compromise. Rugby, as is well known, when the same thing happens in rugby in 1895, rugby splits. You get the split between rugby union and rugby league. Um, cricket, of course, develops this strange sort of feudal structure where the professional is almost sort of the servant of the gentleman amateur within the club. They, they have to bowl to them in the nets. They have to enter the field by a different gate. They even eat, eat separately and so on. It's only football is very much ahead of the curve in British society in that it manages to overcome these sort of strange class obstacles and become a genuinely um, national sport. And, and football also soon became a, an international sport. When did it start escaping the borders of England, Scotland and become played in other countries? That's, that begins to happen um, towards the end of the 19th century. Again, again, it's very much spread um, by, 
British sailors, uh, but also British administrators going around the world. And one of the odd things about football, of course, is it doesn't actually take off in the empire. It takes off in, in Latin America and Europe, but it's very much spread by, by the British. The British have really invented in the late 19th century the modern concept of sport. And this has a huge influence around the world. And a lot of early football clubs, we can still see it, you know, Athletic Bilbao, they, they, they take English names. The Corinthians in Brazil are set up in, in imitation of the, the English amateur team, the Corinthians. Uh, and re But really, it's, it's the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, above all in continental Europe and the southern part of Latin America. Now, people nowadays, always on TV and the radio, complain that football's lost its soul and they, and they hark back to a time they say was a golden age of football. Now, you've studied the long history of football. Do you think that's a fair comparison or were people always making this kind of complaint about the sport? They've always made this kind of complaint. You get people writing this sort of thing in the early 1880s. People are absolutely outraged that people um, are earning a pound a game and that the, the, the sport has lost its soul. It's become a business, blah, blah. The same rhetoric you hear today, you've been hearing since the beginning of the 1880s. And then 20 years later, we're suddenly looking back on the present as a golden era. Now, it's, it's always gone on. And do you watch football regularly yourself? I do. I watch Spurs. Would you would you rather watch uh, a Tottenham playing now in 2013? Or would you rather go and watch a football game from 1863 if you had a time machine and you had the choice? Um, oh, I'd rather watch the modern game. And as I say, in fact, the 1863 game there wasn't such a game. No one ever played it. But but the the mid 19th century game it was incredibly crude and violent. It was a mock battle. Um, there was no finesse to it. The public, the game that was played, Eton and Harrow and so on. And you can still see it. I mean, they still play the field game and the wall game at Eton and Harrow, although the health and safety people have got their hands on it a bit now. But it's no, it's it's nothing like as entertaining as, as watching modern football. I mean, you know, football 20 years ago was nothing like as entertaining as modern football. And do you think you'd get better pies now? Uh, I, I think you probably would. The, the 1901 Cup final was known as the pie final because uh, Spurs played, a, you, I don't know if you know this, Spurs played away. They, they drew a Crystal Palace in front of a, a crowd of 113,000, the biggest that had ever turned out, you know, which astonished contemporaries. They then played the replay in Bolton and the um, the train company set the fares too high. And... Um, and in Bolton, they, everyone got ready for another crowd of 100,000 and hardly anyone turned up. And they, 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 in Bolton, they were left with you know, like 100,000 pies to eat. That was Richard Sanders. His book, Beastly Fury, The Strange Birth of British Football, was published by Bantam Press in 2009. Last week, the BBC announced its plans for commemorating the First World War centenary including some of its lead offerings for TV, radio and online. I headed over to the launch at New Broadcasting House and after the announcement, I caught up with Martin Davidson, the BBC's commissioning editor for history, to get his perspective on the challenges the corporation faces in marking this major anniversary. I asked him first of all about how the BBC would balance competing national narratives of the conflict. Our coverage will cover so many different stories, different approaches yeah. and different angles that I don't believe it will be possible for any one angle to feel aggrieved. Mm. Um, I think the, the, the non-British perspective does crop up in a number of our pieces. And although the role that uh, uh, the war played on Germany or Germ the role that Germany yeah. played in the war does crop up, I don't think it's something that we are 
we're certainly not jingoistic about or, or gratuitously warmongering about. The phrase I always use is we're not glorifying anything, but what we are doing use that great phrase from the Wipers Times who had a regular column yeah. which was people we take our hats off to all we're doing is we're taking our hats off to as many of the 65 million men who put on uniform as well as all their families who had to suffer the consequences um, uh, uh, as possible and part of taking our hats off to that generation mm. is also to study and to interrogate and to understand better than ever before what they were fighting for and one concern I think is this just going to be well how can we prevent it being a lot of middle aged white men talking to a lot of middle aged white men well is that a problem maybe that's not well it, 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 no the, the, the part of the part of making the coverage last for four years across television across radio and in particular across online part of the points of doing that is to make sure we draw as many different audiences as possible into the subject yeah. matter and we will be tailoring our output where and as appropriate to lots and lots of different audiences. This is absolutely not supposed to be simply for people who already know they're interested in World War One. although we will absolutely uh, deliver uh, those audiences with what we hope will be significant, substantial and original programming. But other audiences, not least people my kids' ages, I'm absolutely determined that they get something out of this too, that we make sure we tell a much wider range of stories than was possible 50 years ago when, we, when the BBC made The Great War. So there will be a, a major spotlight put on the experience of those 65 million men who put on uniform. Not all of them were white, not all of them were citizens of the European empires. Uh, and uh, those stories will feature much more centrally than than we've ever done before, the stories of women, the stories of families, the stories of various home fronts, but also the geopolitics, the contribution that the, that the First World War made to the world we live in today, to absolutely understand that process. So all of those are, I think, subjects and approaches that by no means speak only to one demographic. Um, I know you're primarily concerned with television, but there's going to be World War One output throughout the BBC radio, yes. all the different TV channels online... Has it been a challenge to try and make sure there's not too much duplication and that all these things we've, we've complement each other? Uh, definitely. No, we, we knew 18 months ago we started planning how to make sure that we maximised our output rather than gave anyone the excuse to not engage with our stuff because they thought it was overduplicated. So we've worked very, very hard to, if you like, make sure what we do complements and adds up to more than the sum of its parts because, yes, there is, there is going to be a lot of output. But one of the most exciting things has been working very closely with radio and with nations and with local, uh, uh, both local radio and local television. To, and and, and the, the, Jane Ellison, Craig Henderson and I have been determined to do that right, right from the beginning um, and make sure that our colleagues in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland are part of that conversation too. So there will be a lot, but I, 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 I remain confident you won't be looking at things thinking, wait a minute, this sounds very familiar, down even to the question of what archive we use. So one of the, one of the things I'm trying to do is I'm making sure production teams all speak to each other to make sure we don't all just use the same archive uh, because I think that that is where the audience subliminally most notices possible duplication. So we're, we're very mindful of that and we're, we're very determined that this, this whole thing, online radio, television, adds up to more than the sum of its parts. I know this is going to be also a difficult balance, but 
is there a, pro- a danger of too much furthermore output? Have you tried to sort of do it so that it's not more than people actually can digest? Uh, the calculation is, is, is a crucial one. And the way we've addressed that is to make sure my, my acid test is, would you have commissioned any of these pieces if there hadn't been an anniversary? Are they strong enough on their own? And my answer, I can put my hand on the heart, is everything I've been involved with, that is true. They're all, what they all have in common is these are films I would have been interested in commissioning anyway. Um, what we're also going to do is use the advantage we have is that, of course, this is a centenary that lasts four years. So we don't all have to concentrate it into one very, very, very muddy patch yeah. of ground. That what we can do is, 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 if you like, drop our major projects carefully into the schedule at key moments. So a combination of scheduling, a combination of making sure that our subject matter reinvents itself uh, and making always making sure that we're commissioning pieces that we think have inherent value anyway, not just there to be stocking filler for an anniversary. Those are the three ways I think we're aiming to make sure that at the end of it, people will have had their pick from a well-furnished banquet but won't feel stuffed. Your, your brief encompasses more than just the First World War. You're in charge of all, all kinds of history on television. For those people who, for say, the First World War isn't their main interest, will there still be lots of oh, other of course. BBC yes. history programmes yes. on at this period? Absolutely. Absolutely. This is not going to be... We commission history anyway, so it, felt, mm. it feels totally appropriate that some of what we're commissioning anyway should have World War I as, as its focus. But by no means exclusively all that we will be doing, there will be uh, 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 you know, some of the other great subjects that we'll be, we'll be looking at uh, uh, will include other anniversaries, not least World War II anniversaries, but the extraordinary story of Magna Carta and the rise of uh, British democracy as a result of that. We will be looking at, um, there's a major bit of programming being planned around the early 17th century, around the time of the Mayflower and the gunpowder plot. We will be looking at periods very different from that of the first two decades of the 20th century. That was Martin Davidson. To read more about the BBC's First World War plans, head to historyextra.com, where you'll also find interviews with Dan Snow and David Reynolds about the challenges of covering this anniversary. Well, that's almost all for this week. Do, as always, get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we'll do our best to read out some of your messages in future episodes. And as well as email, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at History Extra and Facebook, facebook.com forward slash History Extra. And don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you'll find news, blogs, image galleries, quizzes and more. Next week, we'll be taking a trip around the National Maritime Museum's new Nelson Gallery and paying a visit to a haunted castle. Do join us for that if you dare. The History Extra Weekly podcast was recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher.